Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Technion Israel Institute of Technology is where some of Israel's brightest minds ask the biggest question of all. What if... What if they could take on the world's biggest challenges? What if they could develop life-changing environmental, scientific, health, medical, and technological discoveries that will make a huge impact on Israel and the planet? But they don't just ask the question, they answer it too. They turn those ideas into reality. They make them happen. To see just some of the incredible things they've achieved, get the Technion Booklet of Wonders at ats.org slash wonders We hope it inspires you to give them your support so they can keep doing what they do best The American Technion Society World-changing discoveries by Israel's brightest minds made possible by you Hey listeners, it's Mishi. This week, we released our 50th wartime diary. Next week is Yom HaZikaron and Yom HaTzmaut. And as a way of marking this milestone, and these dates, Yochai Meital and I will have a series of onstage conversations in New York and Cleveland. We'll discuss the process of creating wartime diaries, talk about some of the challenges we've encountered, the dilemmas we've had, the insights we've gained, So if you want to hear what covering the evolving story of this war has been like for us, we'd love to see you at one of our events. All the details are on our site, israelstory.org. And meanwhile, wishing us all calm and peaceful days ahead. Hey, I'm Mishi Harman, and from PRX, this is Israel Story. Ancient Land, Modern Tales. Israel Story is produced together with Tablet Magazine, where some of you might have heard our first season. But if not, don't worry. You can catch up on our brand new feed on iTunes, or anywhere else really that you get your podcasts, all under Israel Story. So, after many months of traveling up and down the country, chasing down stories all the way to Malta, England, and Nepal, even Nova Scotia, we are back with more life-size, human-interest stories from a place which, let's face it, usually serves up narratives, news really, of a very different kind. We have some great stories planned for you this season. And because of that, we thought that, you know, once a month just wasn't enough anymore. So from now on, we're going to have a slightly shorter episode for you every other Wednesday. So subscribe to our feed, and you won't miss a single episode. All right, so here we are starting our second season. And you know, it's funny, but when you think about Israel, you think about the Middle East, maybe about Europe, you think about ties with America. What you most definitely don't think about 
is Africa. Even though basically we're right around the corner. So in today's episode, that is what we're going to think about. Out of Africa and back again. For most Israelis, at least in the last few years, the phrase out of Africa has nothing to do with Robert Redford and Meryl Streep. It's synonymous with this guy. My name is uh, Yuval Noah Harari. I don't know, I come from a small provincial town near Haifa, at the hub of the petrochemical industry of Israel. And I'm a lecturer at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem at the Department of History. In 2011, he wrote a book. I'm now known for mainly uh, for writing uh, Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind, which is a survey of uh, human history from the Stone Age to the Silicon Age. And ever since it came out, A Brief History of Humankind has been at the top of the bestseller lists. Everybody has read this book. That's Deborah Harris, the international literary agent for Yuval's book. And she's right. It's kind of rare to walk into a house and not see it on the shelf. Yeah, I think it's up to about 150,000 copies. I mean, it's really unheard of. This is by far the most successful nonfiction book ever published in Israel, and certainly from Israel abroad. And just to make sure that we didn't think that that was an exaggeration of a happy agent, Deborah started listing off some of the translations. U.S., U.K., France. I've just done Estonia, Indonesia, all of Scandinavia. We don't have Iceland yet. Korea's coming up soon. Japan is coming up soon. So is, is, is there a movie in the future? I'm not handling the movie rights, sadly. What all these people, minus the Icelanders, that is, are so excited about is the tale of how humans came out of Africa. All humans are African in origin. Both our bodies and our minds evolved in adaptation to African environment, to the savannah of Africa. They didn't evolve in adaptation to living in Scandinavia or in California. So... No matter where you are or who you are, in a very deep sense, you're African. In case you weren't listening in high school bio, here's Yuval's brief history of humanity, in just under 35 seconds. Humans evolved in East Africa around 2.5 million years ago, and then you had a wave of different species of humans spreading out of Africa and settling uh, Europe and Asia Uh, about two million years ago. And then you had the second coming out of Africa about 70,000 years ago when one human species, Homo sapiens, spread from East Africa and basically conquered the entire planet, uh, driving to extinction all the other humans around the world. Now, somehow Israel has a way of ending up in the middle of everything. GOP presidential debates, for example. Israel, I love Israel. Oh, by the way. On day one in the Oval Office, I will make two phone calls. The first to my good friend Bibi Netanyahu but to I reassure him we will stand with the state of Israel. Israel is a priority to be able to fund and keep Imagine them strong. Imagine a president who stands unapologetically with the nation of Israel. But in the whole complicated out-of-Africa story, Israel actually does play a central role. May Goder is a postdoctoral fellow at the Weizmann Institute in Rehovot. She's a prehistoric archaeologist. Somewhere between 60 and 50,000 years ago, modern humans start taking over the world. Now, how does Israel connect to this big story? 
because we are the only uh, land crossing from Africa into Eurasia. That's right. If we completely simplify matters, and I can just imagine how all the scholars we talk to are wincing right about now, the first Homo sapiens, the forefathers of us all, were sort of Israelis. Of course, there are many different theories and dating schemes, various waves of migration, multi-regional co-evolution, early hominids, Homo erectus, Neanderthals. But what we do know, Yuval says, is that it is quite certain that at least many of the initial immigration waves out of Africa passed through Israel. And also, uh, in Israel we have the clearest evidence for sapiens and Neanderthals living side by side for several thousand years. And there is a good chance that at least some of the sexual interbreeding between sapiens and Neanderthals also took place in Israel or more broadly in the Levantine region. So you might know about the land of milk and honey, but I'm just going to go ahead and propose a whole new branding campaign. Israel, the land of sex between Neanderthals and sapiens. Anyway, those original migrations weren't a one-time thing. People have been journeying between Africa and Israel ever since. There was Joseph, who showed his jealous brothers by becoming a hotshot advisor to Pharaoh. There was, of course, this guy. Let my people go! The slaves are mine. A bit more recently, there were waves of immigration from North Africa, Morocco, Tunisia, Algeria, and then, starting in the 70s, also of Ethiopian Jews. So, we go way back. And today on Israel Story, we have two tales of people going in completely opposite directions, continuing in this grand migrational tradition. Act 1. How do you say Anne Frank and Tigrinya? Yochai Meital brings us the story of one member of the latest group to cross the Sinai. So this is my bank, where I have all my precious things. I'm sitting with my friend, Ikalo Biene. We're in a more or less empty classroom near Tel Aviv's dingy central bus station, talking about literature. I, am, I, can, I don't consider myself as a writer, but I do write some poetry. The classroom's in a run-down, one-story building. There are cracks running along the walls, and a few rows of cheap plastic chairs that all face an ancient-looking whiteboard. Other than some chirping birds perched on the windowsill, it feels pretty depressing. Outside, there's a small yard with a distinct smell of urine. Ikalo read us some of his poems. First, I, I wrote two poems. One was, was a reaction to what, uh, what happened to me. I was talking with time. I told time to stop. Mm-hmm. Stop and wait for me. Because I was just, I was lagging, no. behind. We're here because Ikala runs an after-school program out of this place. It's for the children of Eritrean refugees like himself. Ikalo's in charge of English and Tigrinya, the mother tongue that many of these kids are rapidly forgetting. But today, aside from the random kid running in or yelling in the hallway, the place is empty. Ikalo told his students to stay at home. There's a demonstration forming outside. The local residents are protesting against the African migrants who have flooded their neighborhood. They claim that the illegal infiltrators, as they call the Africans, are responsible for the recent increase in violence and just general neglect of their neighborhood. 
The crowds haven't arrived yet, but looking out the window, I can see that one guy is already holding up a handwritten sign that says, South Tel Aviv is a refugee camp. Another with big block letters says, Yesterday it was my daughter, tomorrow it's going to be yours. A bunch of recent gatherings like this one have turned violent, and Yikalo didn't want his students anywhere near if or when this goes down. So we've got the place to ourselves. We pull up a couple of plastic chairs to talk. You see that, that um, poem? That's my favorite, Robert, Robert Frost, The Road Not Taken. I shall be telling this with a thigh, somewhere edges and edges hence. Two roads diverged in a wood and I, I took the one less traveled by. And that has made all the difference. Who's Ikalo? That's a tricky one. I've known him for a few years now, and we've become friends. And I know he doesn't particularly care for labels. I guess I could present him as some sort of maverick, finishing both a BA and an MA in psychology. An unusual feat for an asylum seeker in Israel. Recently, he was even offered a spot in a PhD program. I could also tell you he's a teacher, an educator, that he works so hard that he barely sleeps, that he's poor, that he shares a one-room flat with three roommates, all of them also Eritrean refugees, that he's a survivor of civil war, of torture, of interrogation, extortion, and displacement from his family, from everything he knows, really. And he's also a poet with an Anne Frank obsession, an obsession that started long before he ever even heard of Israel. But we'll get back to that in a minute. Ikala was born in rural Eritrea. By the time he began university, he was a young idealist with a big mouth. He said what he thought, and in Eritrea that isn't such a good idea. He was put under surveillance by the secret police, interrogated, tortured, and eventually released. But Ikala knew that next time it would be much worse. So he made arrangements and slipped across the border to Ethiopia. In order to protect his family, he didn't even say goodbye. It wasn't an easy decision. But that time, I thought in a, in a matter of years, some years, then I would be back to Eritrea. That's what I was thinking. You learn from, like, from life. I learned that I can never go to Eritrea while, uh, while the ruling party is still there, in power. But I learned this when I, when I crossed the border, you know. Once he crossed into Ethiopia, he was picked up by the border patrol and sent to a nearby refugee camp, where he joined thousands of other Eritrean refugees. It was hot, dusty, lonely, and dull. But Ikalo found his place, not among people, but among books. So there was a, a library. It was full of books, actually. It was a really nice library, although it was extremely hot. The days came and went, weeks seemed to creep by slowly, and Ikalo sat in the library, which, even though he remembers as nice, was really just a couple of shelves, a ragtag collection of tattered books, each with their own travel story. I didn't have many friends, so I had only books that are my friends, and you make the characters in the, in the books your friends. And these new friends carried him far away from his confined existence. They took him to Osho's ashram in Pune, India. You will be surprised to know that the word devil and the word divine have the same roots. Or to Robinson Crusoe's desert island. For the first time in my life, I am utterly and completely alone. All the way to packed arenas in the U.S. with passionate self-help gurus like Tony Robbins. This could be the greatest time you ever live. It can be the best financial time, the best emotional time, the best spiritual time of your life. But you better take control of your state. And then he stumbled upon this little diary. Saturday. 
20 June 1942. The Diary of Anne Frank. It's an odd idea for someone like me to keep a diary, not only because I have never done so before, but because it seems to me that neither I, nor for that matter anyone else, will be interested in the unbosomings of a 13-year-old schoolgirl. When I read it, I mean, Still, the mean? end, I couldn't just, I couldn't help crying. I want to write, but more I didn't know about the story. I, I didn't know anything about Jewish. I know about the Second World War, a little, but not specifically about Jewish or Anna Frank. There is a saying that paper is more patient than man. I, I thought she would be freed at the end, but she died. So she was a friend, and it felt like I felt like as if I lost a friend. It was very, very um, painful. After reading it over and over again, Ikaro decided to translate the diary into his language, Tigrinya. So between teaching at the camp school and playing his flute, this is him by the way, he sat with a small pocket dictionary, a new notebook, a couple of pencils and an eraser, and began. It took him two years to translate the book, but just as he was finishing, the situation in the refugee camp changed dramatically. Militant opposition groups turned up and started threatening the residents. And some of these groups are groups that we don't like. Like there are some of them are jihadists. Daily life in the camp became dangerous. At some point, they kind of my friend was kidnapped. Like a good friend of mine was kidnapped. This friend, also a teacher at the camp school, was nearly beaten to death. So uh, I said, "Oh, <laughs> then tomorrow is my turn." Once again, Ikaro had to flee. First, he headed to Sudan, then to Cairo. Along the way, the smugglers, human traffickers, really forced him to give up his belongings, including his handwritten notebook, which contained what was probably the world's only translation of Anne Frank's diary into Tigrinya. The smugglers told us that we should not carry anything, even a paper, a piece of paper, with us, and that they would bring all the, our things to Cairo with a car, like by, by car, and I trusted them. And I gave all my, my stories, my my diaries and my certificates, my, um, like the translation of Anna Frank. Once they got to Cairo, Ikalo begged the smugglers to give him his things back, but no one was listening. They didn't give it a shit, you know, just... It wasn't meaningful for them, but it was meaningful for me. I didn't want people see me, see me crying, but uh, I was crying during the night. I couldn't sleep. Three weeks in uh, Cairo, and I was... I was crying almost all night. Three weeks later, Ikalo joined a group that was smuggled into Israel. They all piled onto a cramped Toyota Hilux and sped through the Sinai Desert. We didn't know where we were heading. We didn't know anything about Israel. All I knew was Gaza, the war in Gaza. We were heading to the unknown. Actually, there was one other thing Ikalo knew about Israel. He knew it was a land full of Jews. And he couldn't help but wonder about his old literary friend. I was thinking of Anna Frank. If Anna Frank was fam- I mean, famous in, in Israel, maybe if I, I arrived safely in Israel, then I was thinking of talking to her relatives, maybe. 
The truck arrived at the border. It was the middle of the night, and Nicalo jumped over what was then just a low barbed wire fence marking the border between Egypt and Israel. A patrol squad of Israeli reserve soldiers noticed them and picked them up. The first question I asked the soldier was if, I knew, if he knew Anne Frank, by the way. The surprised soldier said yes, he did know about Anne Frank. But when Nicalo asked if he could put him in touch with some of her relatives, the soldier just smiled and offered him water, bread, and jam instead. This all took place in the winter of 2008. Since then, the attitude and policies towards asylum seekers in Israel have changed. If it were today, Ikala would have been detained at least for a year. But back then, the procedure was different. After being kept in military barracks for a couple of days, he was dropped off at a bus station. Ikala made his way to Jerusalem, where he landed a job as a night watchman at a construction site. With his first paycheck in hand, he immediately set out to look for an English-language bookstore. I asked them if they had a... Anna Frank story, and I found this. So I bought this book, and I started translating again. That's right. He started translating Anne Frank's diary all over again. That was seven years ago, at the very start of a massive wave of migration from Sudan and Eritrea. And while it's hard to say that Israel was waiting for Ikala with open arms when he showed up, he basically got by okay. Ikala was accepted to a private college, finished a BA, then a master's. Now he runs the after-school program. But others, especially those who came after him, weren't as fortunate. Once the numbers started building up, the public outcry became loud. The government reacted quickly and decisively. They built a huge expensive fence along the Egyptian border, which reduced the flow of migrants to a trickle. Most of those already here, people who ran away from war and genocide, corrupt regimes, abject poverty and harsh dictatorships, live like Ikalo in Tel Aviv, or more accurately in three very poor neighborhoods in South Tel Aviv. These neighborhoods were crowded and neglected to begin with, even before about 35,000 Africans moved in. And probably no big surprise here, many of the local residents felt and still feel threatened. They blame the refugees for everything, rising crime rates, high unemployment, you name it. One particularly vocal activist, a guy called Baruch Marzel, set up his headquarters in the same building where Ikalo and his roommates live. Most of the anti-refugee activity is organized in those offices, so whenever he goes in or out of his apartment, Ikalo looks around and kind of bows his head. So far he's been fine, but many of his friends have been deported, or as the government copywriters coined the term, willfully expelled. A lot of them are scared to walk around on the street because they could be detained at any moment. Back in the classroom, it started to become noisier. The demonstration was picking up, so we stepped outside to check things out. It didn't look like a very big rally. I could tell that the agitated organizers were disappointed by the turnout. When we tried to get closer to record some of it, one of the protesters walked up to confront us. You heard about these animals, he yelled? If you want to record animals, go to the zoo in Ramat Gan. He called us Israel haters and threatened to break our equipment. So we walked back inside, finding some refuge in Nikalo's classroom. It was late and Nikala wanted to get home before things heated up. But before we left, we asked him to read us some of the translated diary. Here. Just really for the music of it. 12-June-1942. And as he went on, I thought about what a surreal situation this all is. Here we are in Israel. Nikalo from Eritrea is reading the chronicles of a Dutch-Jewish teenager in hiding in Amsterdam, in Tigrinya. And while all this is happening... A steady chant blends in from outside. 
go home to Sudan, they all scream together, and then break into a spontaneous Am Yisrael Chai. Long live the people of Israel. Yochai Meital is a senior producer on our show. As the heated debate surrounding the African migrants-slash-asylum seekers-slash-infiltrators continues, Ikalo is busy at work trying to grow his after-school program. If you want to hear more about it, contact us, and we'll make the connection. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So not all the movement is coming out of Africa and into Israel. Our next story is about the opposite journey. Dana Harman is a staff writer at Haaretz, the Israeli Daily, and also just happens to be my sister. Act 2, White Suzuki Days. Just a quick note that this story might not be ideal for young children. I had just turned 30, and in many ways, a lot of ways, my life was amazing. I had a rooftop apartment in North Tel Aviv with no kitchen but a lot of light and the perfect neighborhood cafe directly downstairs where I signed for my cappuccinos. I was the diplomatic correspondent for the Jerusalem Post, which was a big old job, and I was also having a big love affair with the diplomatic correspondent from Haaretz, the rival paper. So big love, big stories, lots of excitement. But somehow, and at some point, I started wanting out. It was 2000, the Camp David Peace Summit had just failed, as had the peace talks before that at Y and Shepherdstown. The Israeli-Palestinian story I was covering, and living, felt heavy, like it was going to be serving up the same plots and the same quotes from the unnamed same high-level sources in the Prime Minister's office forever. It was summer, and it was too hot. I knew there was a world outside of here, other storylines, other people with totally different problems tied up in totally different knots. And I was just young enough and adventurous enough, or maybe just dumb enough, to easily give up everything familiar and set out in search of things I knew almost nothing about. And that's how I got my one-way ticket to Nairobi. My parents were not impressed. Neither was my newspaper, and nor was the boyfriend. But for reasons no one including really me, totally got. I had what I can only describe, and I know how cliche this sounds, but a totally burning desire to go roam Africa and try and understand and write about that continent. And when I got there, I was so thrilled to be under those African skies and also so relieved to be out of the Middle East with everything that I loved but was sick of that nothing fazed me. Not the hovel of a room that I rented, not the electricity that flicked on and off, nor the so-called rape gates I was supposed to lock at night to stop anyone who might be attacking the compound from attacking me. Not getting sick and being on my own, throwing up into a bathtub with no running water. Not my lack of Swahili 
or even my new, demoted freelancer status, which had me pitching stories as often as I was writing them. Nairobi was violent and a little dangerous, and the stories I started writing around Africa were often shocking and sad. At the time, AIDS was raging. Nearby Somalia and Sudan were burning. Congo was a war zone, and hunger was unabating across Ethiopia. Really upsetting. And yet, living there in Kenya was also moving and inspiring and fun. I loved the way people spoke, the cadence of their language, the way they said pole pole, slowly, slowly, when you tripped, and the funny, small, unlikely, and unfamiliar tales they told me. Early on, I realized that I couldn't do reporting or living there without a good way to get around. And considering both how great a driver I am in the best of circumstances and how everyone's always scaring everyone else, with good reason about carjackings and so-called night robbery, I realized I needed both a car and a driver. And that is when Robert entered my life. I found him through the Israeli embassy. He'd applied to be a driver there a few months earlier and didn't get the job. But when I asked for some advice there on going about finding a driver for myself, the ambassador's secretary handed me a pile of rejected resumes and told me to have a look. I wish I could find that CV of Robert's today, and I have looked for it, but I remember that it really made me smile. Maybe because under hobbies he put talking to people, or maybe because he also listed listening to Dolly Parton music. He showed up for the interview in an ill-fitting suit and tie and was nervous and seemed very serious about car stuff. And I liked him, and that was that. From then on, we were a team. The first order of the day, after I hired Robert and got a real job as the bureau chief of the Christian Science Monitor in Africa, was to buy a car for him to drive. Robert was in charge of the search, and we went from garage to garage, peering under hoods and checking gearboxes and kicking tires— And I'm going to wager that he knew as little about it all as I did. We ended up with a rattling white Suzuki Samurai, which I thought was really cute and my serious Land Rover-type journalist friends made endless fun of and called a sorry excuse for a four-wheel drive. We spent almost three years together, Robert and me, crisscrossing the country, as well as driving over into Uganda and Tanzania and even once all the way to Rwanda and the border with Congo. Me, doing interviews, writing stories, and trying to find a decent internet connection. Robert, checking the maps, giving me advice, waiting to get my visas, and helping me translate sometimes. And both of us singing Dolly Parton along the way. He told me about life on the Shamba, the farm in Kisi, and his dreams of buying more land and settling there someday. I told him about the Israel-Palestinian conflict, and my different friends and boyfriends. He was protective of me. When we went out into the bush, he would often come jogging alongside me, even though he didn't much see the point in or like jogging, just to make sure I stayed safe. Once, when I was writing a story about the spread of AIDS along a trucking route and we were sleeping overnight in basically a brothel, he stayed up until the morning, sitting outside my room like a guard. I got to know his family over time his wife and daughter who tended the family farm up north, and his sister-in-law who he lived with in the city, together with his youngest daughter and son, all of them getting by mainly with the help of the meager but apparently normal salary I paid him, $100 a month at first, and then by the end, 200 I had never had anyone work for me before, and I never really got the hang of acting like a boss, especially in the way white bosses typically acted in Kenya. I felt uncomfortable if Robert had to wait for me in the Suzuki for too long. 
If I was at a dinner party and he was parked outside, I would make him a plate and take it out to him or try and leave on the early side. If I was sitting at home writing and he was in standby, I wouldn't really be able to focus until I let him go home. We were friends in a way, and the same age. I had gone to Harvard and then gotten a master's at Cambridge, and he hadn't finished high school, so that's a big difference. And I was white and he was black, obviously, and I had the money and the power and he was working for me, also obviously. But then again, we really did share a curiosity about many of the same things, and we found a lot to discuss. And in the context of Africa and things tribal and African, he often knew more than me. Although just as often, he couldn't frame what he knew. When he told me he wanted to be a journalist like me, I got him a few notepads and pens and encouraged him to do some writing. I said maybe my paper would publish something of his, say, about Kisi traditions. He tried, but it never held together. His sense of narrative was different, and he never got into the habit of marking beginnings and endings of stories, although I encouraged him to keep practicing. My best friend in Nairobi, Stuart, watching my relationship with Robert, would often tell me I didn't know what I was doing, that basically by becoming buddies of sorts and encouraging Robert to think his world and my world were not that far apart and that he should give stepping into mine a whirl, I was messing with the way things were done. It would end badly, he would warn me. You don't understand Africa, he said sometimes. Stewart is what's known as a KC, which stands for Kenya Cowboy. That's what they call the white Kenyans who grew up there, macho and adventurous, hard-living and hard-partying kind of guys who typically live in beautiful homes, slightly fraying at the edges, on lots of land, and they speed around in big Land Rovers. They run fancy safari outfits and fly their little planes out to the coast for weekend parties. And they speak to their staff, who they are most definitely not friends with, in perfect Swahili. I basically thought Stuart was racist and dismissed any advice he had on how I should or should not behave towards Robert, or towards the two and then three and then four other staffers who started somehow working for me. There was Mary, Robert's second cousin, who cleaned my house, and Cyrus, a cousin by another mother who guarded my gate, and then Silas, a friend of Robert's from Kesey who was my gardener, and who tried to convince me that I needed his brother-in-law, I don't even remember his name, as a deputy gardener. One thing I can say for sure about the KCs, without getting to the question of racist or not, is they are not suckers. I, on the other hand, was a sucker. Soon I had Mary's sister also working for me, and somehow was paying part of the school fees for most of my staff's kids and funeral funds when any of their relatives died, which seemed to happen on a regular basis. Once, Cyrus told me he had to buy a cow for his mother's funeral, and I gave him some money for it. Then, seven months later, he told me his mother, but another mother, had died, and he needed to buy a cow all over again. And if I was a sucker, my dad, who came with my mom to visit me a year and a half after I moved to Nairobi, was an even bigger sucker. He felt so uncomfortable with Robert waiting around for him and driving him and opening doors for him that he would tip him practically every time he got out of the car even though I told him again and again that he didn't need to, and shouldn't, because actually that was just his job. Robert, in turn, loved my gentle dad. And when, one rainy day a year later, Robert's wife gave birth to another baby son, Robert told me he was going to name him Little David, after my dad, David. I told him I was really touched. Of course, I paid into the fund for the baby naming party, and I went to Kenyatta Hospital to see the kid and kissed his fuzzy head when Robert's wife, Rachel, put him in my arms. 
But when the baby came down with malaria a few months later and went back to the hospital, I didn't go visit. I actually didn't even think that much about it. Later, my mom would ask me why I didn't pay to move little David to a better hospital. But honestly, the thought had not even occurred to me. Everyone in Kenya got malaria at some point, it seemed. I figured they knew what to do. I was down at the coast celebrating New Year's with friends when Robert called, and he said, David is no more. At first, I didn't know what he was talking about. Then I realized the baby had died. Robert wanted me to come up to Kisi for the funeral, and I wanted to, too. Some cousin of his got my Suzuki and picked me up, and then, picking up and packing in more and more relatives into the car along the way, we headed up to Kisi. The child's body was in a tent, and Robert asked me to partake in the Kisi tradition of sleeping in the tent, too. I did. I also helped the family purchase a cow for the funeral and was the one who gave the eulogy. My parents called and relayed their condolences to all those gathered as well. Robert was really proud that we were all involved, but not everyone up there was so sure about it. And I also started wondering if maybe I was overdoing it. I heard some whispering that the reason little David had died was that Robert had called him David. Robert's ancestors were angry, one of his older uncles later explained to me because Robert had not named the child for one of them. The old man told me I was taking Robert away from his world and leading him to believe he could join mine. You don't understand, he told me. Things changed after David died. On a few occasions when I was out of town, friends told me they had seen Robert speeding around in my Suzuki, drunk. I asked Robert, who denied it. He was a Jehovah's Witness, this I knew, and he never drank, he assured me. I was not sure who to believe. And then Robert started, I think, stealing money. One day I sent him over to my place to get something. Later I found $200 missing from a bedroom drawer. But weirdly, $150 more were still there. What tribe is Robert from, my friend Cole said when I told him the story. Cole and his wife had been living in Kenya for over 20 years. They weren't Kenya cowboys, but UN workers who'd fallen in love with the country and its people and stayed. Kisi, I told him. Then it was him, Cole said, without a doubt. He took the money. Kisis are wily that way. If he'd been a Kikuyu, he would have taken the whole sum. Aluya wouldn't have done it at all. That was definitely a Kisi move. Cole was racist too, I decided. I asked Robert and he denied it. Again, I wasn't sure who to believe. When I got my bank statements and saw someone was taking money out, $20 here, $30 there, adding up to hundreds, I knew I had to face what was happening. I confronted Robert, who'd had access to my bank card when I was away on work trips so he could pay my electric bills on time. He looked so sheepish and seemed not to understand, basically, how he'd been caught. I'm not sure he realized I could look up my bank statements. But he admitted he had taken the money. He said he didn't have it anymore, as he had used it to buy some land and pay off a debt. He said he thought I might not notice, and he promised to pay me back. I should have fired him, but that very day that he admitted he had taken the money, he drove me to my gym, and when I arrived, I realized I'd forgotten to take my sneakers. I asked him to go fetch them for me back home, 
And then I sat there thinking about what a strange world we live in, that I should be in the position to send a grown man away to pick up my sneakers, or be able to get away with paying him a monthly salary lower than my gym membership and still think we were friends. I didn't fire him, and the problems continued. On one occasion, when I let him drive my Suzuki back to his own home on a rainy day, he skidded and rammed into a busy kiosk, almost killing someone. The crowd then turned and attacked him, taking away the money I'd just given him for Christmas and battering his face. I traveled more and more than usual that winter. I was busy, but I was also just avoiding a man who was clearly in trouble in a situation I didn't know how to handle. I told you so, said Stuart, even before it got more horribly, unimaginably bad. I was in Uganda covering the elections. When they were done, I called Robert to tell him I was flying back to Kenya and to ask him to pick me up at the airport the next day. He didn't pick up the mobile I'd bought him, and instead a relative got on the line and, without much explanation, told me that Robert was unavailable and that there was a problem that he would explain when I returned. I returned the next day to a nightmare. The car was in the police compound, and Robert was in jail. When I went to retrieve it, I found my white Suzuki covered in mud with bloodstains on the seats. The police chief told me that Robert had been caught in the forest in the Suzuki, raping his 16-year-old daughter, Ruth. I knew her well. Now, it is possible that the accusation was false. I don't know, and I guess I never will. The police in Kenya were and are notoriously corrupt, and it's possible someone might have framed Robert for some reason or another. But it's more likely that he did do it, that he raped his 16-year-old daughter. A week later, Robert was allowed to place a phone call, and he called me and asked me to pay his bail. I was away again by then, this time in Zimbabwe on a farm, covering a story about the land grabs there. He cried into the phone, and I could hardly hear what he was saying, and I felt physically sick, maybe a little freaked out. Being far from Kenya gave me an out, and I did nothing. I only saw Robert one more time in my life. He was released after a month since his daughter refused to press charges, and he came over to my place. He had lost a lot of weight in jail, and his fingernails were long, and his eyes looked haunted. He sat on the corner of my couch, and he looked down at his feet. I told him that I had loved having him work for me and that he had been a big part of my life during those years, but that I could no longer have him as my driver. I said that part of his job, kind of, had been to take care of me in Africa. It was not supposed to be me taking care of him. He nodded, but he didn't say much as I remember it. He did say he was sorry, although I think he also said, or maybe he mumbled, that he was innocent. It's strange how little details I remember. I mainly remember his deep embarrassment. I wanted to say a lot more to him that day and also to ask a lot of questions. I am a journalist, after all. But I didn't. He asked me for a letter of recommendation, which, zombie-like, I later wrote, mentioning his smarts and his ability to take initiative and his sense of humor. I didn't mention the rape accusation. Again, I don't know why I did that. We said goodbye, and he walked out the door, and I remember it was drizzling. A moment later, I heard his voice below my window calling up to me. He told me he had no money at all, and could I help him with bus fare to get back to town. That broke my heart. In the years since, I've rolled what happened and how it all ended around in my head. A lot. I've replayed that scene. 
Robert thin and stooped over, heading to the bus stop, and me, paralyzed basically and confused, looking down from the window. In time, the image has faded, but I still wonder what became of him and where he is. I wonder about Ruth, his daughter, too. And I wonder whether I did something wrong. Was I to blame in some way for what transpired, for interfering with his life and messing it up? for ignoring my friends and what I felt were their racist warnings about the rules of the land. I had a lot of good intentions, but nothing here ended up good. Of all the difficult stories I heard and witnessed and wrote in Africa, this one was the saddest for me. And it was sad in part because I knew I had a role in it. I just could not understand what it had been. I spent another year and a half in Africa after that day I waved goodbye to Robert and had two other drivers, neither of whom were that much fun and neither of whom became my friends. I didn't even try. And when the son of one of them asked me for help with his university fees, I explained that it would be difficult for me. When I finally left, I donated my Suzuki to a home for street kids called Shangilia. It means rejoice in Swahili. I still get newsletters from them sometimes, and I think they still have the car. Donna Harmon. And that's our episode. We hope you enjoyed it and continue to listen and spread the word. If you're new to the show, you can catch up on all our first season. Just search for Israel Story on iTunes, Stitcher, or any of the other main podcast platforms. And if you've got a moment, please rate us and leave a review. Apparently, the algorithms really like that. And also, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all under Israel Story. Now, before we go, I wanted to say that Israel Story is looking for sponsors. As all you podcast listeners know, companies like Audible, Squarespace, Stamps.com, MailChimp, they've all become household names thanks to podcast sponsorships. And that can be you. Not only will you support our growing show, but you'll also reach a phenomenal and engaged audience. For more information, just email sponsor at prx.org. Israel Story is brought to you by PRX, the public radio exchange, and is produced in partnership with Tablet Magazine. Go to tabletmag.com slash Israel Story to hear all our previous episodes and read fascinating articles about Israel. Thanks to Tarek Foda and Shoshi Shmulovitz for help with the music and mixing of today's episode. To Susan Silverman, Paula Wyman-Kelman, and Ricky Rosen. To Ronen Metal, Paul Ruest, and the IDC Radio Studios in Herzliya. Our staff include Yochai Meital, Shai Satran, Roy Gilron, Maya Kosover, Benny Becker, and Shoshi Shmulevitz. Rachel Fisher and Sophie Shore are new and fantastic production interns. Julie Subrin's our executive producer. I'm Ishi Harman, and we'll be back in two weeks with a brand new episode of Israel Story. Yalla bye.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.